1: Artificial intelligence continues to make advances in leaps and bounds across the scientific spectrum. Our guest today is looking to apply this growing technological field to high-impact weather phenomena, including tornadoes, hail, flooding, drought, turbulence, and more. Dr. Amy McGovern leads the NSF AI Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate, and Coastal Oceanography, and is joining us today to talk about AI, the applications in weather, and more. Welcome, Dr. McGovern. Thank you. So, yeah, this is someone that I, I know, a colleague of mine, and I, I, I believe I've, I know this. You have a PhD in computer science from University of Massachusetts Amherst, a master's in computer science and a BS in math and computer science from Carnegie Mellon, Mellon University. So in the true sense of the word, you don't have any degrees in meteorology. So the first question that I usually ask guests is, how did you become a weather geek? But in this case, I'm going to ask, how did you become a computer geek? And then how did you start applying that to weather?
0: That, that's, a, that's a fair answer or a fair question. Um, I got interested in computers from an early age because I am of the age when personal computers were just starting to be something we could all play with in school. Um, and I got interested in becoming a computer geek because I got interested in playing games and I realized how bad the game AIs were. And I thought I could do better than that. And that's how I got into AI too. Um, The answer to the weather is is probably just, I always wanted to be an astronaut. So I've always been interested in the earth sciences. Um, And I grew up, I'm a a military, my dad was in the military. So we grew up a lot of places, but a lot of the places we grew up um, had a lot of weather. So I got to observe it. And when I got hired at the university of Oklahoma, they really wanted somebody to work on AI for weather. And I said, that sounds like fun. Let's, let's do this. It's a really interesting earth science application.
1: Let's start with the basics because even for me, you know, I I hear AI all the time now in machine learning. But for our Weather Geeks listeners, and we have a broad spectrum of listeners, they hear the term AI all the time. It's all over commercials and so forth they see on TV. Let's start with the basics. What is AI?
0: I'm going to give you two answers. And one of them is that what you're seeing on TV and what you're seeing in the news articles is typically actually machine learning. Um, AI- Tell
1: us the difference between those two because I've often wondered myself.
0: Right, so AI is a superset is really the answer to that, but everybody's using AI to mean machine learning these days. So AI is a computer trying to act intelligently to solve really hard problems. Um, The difference between machine learning and AI is that machine learning is generally adaptive. So machine learning can learn from experience over time to change its answers. Whereas typically AI is more like what you get with Google search, although Google search does adapt to traffic, but just if you ask the same Google question under the exact same circumstances, every time you're going to get the same exact map, right? That's not adaptive, but it's still intelligent. It's AI. But if you then put in the, it's going to adapt to your driving habits and your preferences and what traffic is going on, then you're getting into the learning part.
1: Oh, wow. So, you know, Weather Geeks listeners, if you're like me, I mean, Dr. McGovern has already taught me something today. And, and I'm actually on one of her advisory groups for the uh, Institute that we'll talk about a bit later. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of background on that. Uh, some information collected by our producers. Uh, the NSF AI Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate and Coastal Oceanography uh, changes in weather patterns, ocean sea level rise, and disaster disaster risk amplify the need for accelerated AI research in the environmental sciences. AI2ES is a convergent, multi sector National Science Foundation uh, National Science Foundation trustworthy AI institute led by the University of Oklahoma, and is bringing together researchers in AI, atmospheric sciences, ocean sciences, and risk communication. So. What's the difference? Because I see that word trustworthy and I hear the term explainable. So what's the difference between trustworthy A.I. and explainable A.I.?
0: Trust, so explainable is part of trustworthy. What I mean by trustworthy is that we're going to develop AI that's actually going to get used by the end users because they actually trust what it's going to tell them in whatever situation it is that they're trying to do. They're trying to do a prediction for a tornado. They're trying to do a prediction for drought. Those are different AIs. Um, explainable will be part of the trustworthy, but not all of it. So explainable will be that if you want to understand what the AI is doing, it can you can have some way that it will explain what's going on inside the AI so you can have a better understanding of why it works, why it's giving you the answer it is. And even in, you know, one of the things that trust explainable might do for your trust is it might tell you when you shouldn't trust it. So it might be the case that a mo- method works really well in the Midwest, but not in the Southeast. And you'd like to know that. Before we really
1: dive into the center and sort of this sort of cutting edge world, you're sort of I think, leading, really, in terms of weather and climate. What's, what's some of your research over the years? I mean, I know you're your PhD uh, and have a, had a research agenda before this. So kind of give us a little bit on your background and what your research has been.
0: Um, before coming to Oklahoma, I was working on AI and machine learning, specifically machine learning, since we've differentiated them. Um, and I was working on um, robotics applications, um, trying to find a way to make the, um, the robots automatically discover high level abstractions about the world. So they would interact with the world and, you know, humans put things together in their mind, they do something over and over and they might just turn that into sort of a high level abstractions. So they don't have to think about it. And robots don't have a way to do that. And that's what I worked on for my PhD thesis. Oh wow! Um, since coming to Oklahoma, I've been working primarily on high impact weather, largely on tornadoes and hail and wind. Um, and learning how we can improve the prediction of those. And then the other half of what I really want to do is learn how we can improve the understanding of them so that we're not just taking a forecast that already exists and post-processing, but we're trying to actually understand new science and discover new science. And One of the things that AI is really good at for that, you know, humans can analyze a storm and they do this. The meteorologists will analyze a storm or a couple of storm systems in depth for their dissertation. AI can analyze a thousand of them. Right. So it would be great if we can do that and then maybe find some patterns that the humans just couldn't find, not because they're dumb, but because there's just so much data.
1: Yeah, we we just, in fact, uh, da- I dabbled in this a little bit, not with any expertise, but one of my recent PhD students just uh, for part of his dissertation, we just submitted a paper that's in review right now. I guess it would be more of a machine learning algorithm um, more so than AI looking at, um, we, for the reasons you just mentioned, that's what made me think of this. Uh, we've been looking at something called the Brown Ocean effect, this idea that certain hurricanes can re-intensify or, or maintain their strength over land. And so there are all of these hurricane cases around. Uh, the world uh, in this large, large database base. And there's certain things that we look for that sort of uh, that might give us clues that that's going to happen. And so uh, he he published some type of, I believe, machine. He called it a machine learning algorithm. We'll see if the review reviewers correct us on that or not. Uh, so uh, and that's where I was where I was going next with my questioning, because. You know, as a former NASA scientist myself, Amy, who worked on things like the GPM, Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, I know there's so much data now in meteorology, whether it be from the various weather satellite fleets that are up or from dual polarization weather radar, just observations, uh, Argos floats in the ocean. And so what you're suggesting then is we, I mean, and I've seen this, we have a problem, we have a It's a good problem because we have a lot of data, but it's also a problem because we have a lot of data. Yes. You're saying that AI can sort of help us with that.
0: Yes. I mean, that's one of the motivations I give when I give a talk talking about the Institute is there's just data overload right now. And humans can't do a great job of sorting through all that data, especially in real time. That's another place AI could help. Machine learning can help. It could identify, here's the really important region you need to look at. And here's some of the data streams you might want to look at right now. One of the other applications we've been talking about um, is, could is there a way that we could ingest that data in real time and get it turned back around like so could you ingest the satellite data and get it into a model using data assimilation and right now they throw away the vast majority of the satellite data in real time they archive it they might use it historically but not in real time could you figure out what's really really important to ingest into the model so that the predictions are coming in better
1: right so that's almost, you know, I, 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 my master's thesis before I did my doctoral work was on an optimization algorithm. Uh, we were using genetic algorithms to try to sort of look through patterns and radar data to sort of optimize cost functions to try to find the center of the hurricane and the rain bands and so forth. So in a sense, and, and it's perhaps not the same top terminology, what you just said about satellite data, you got so much data coming in, but there's sort of an optimal state or set of data or type of data that can benefit uh, a model that ingests this uh, information that's called data assimilation, uh, rather than just sort of throwing the, the, I guess, the kitchen sink at the model, and that can create Mm -hmm. some inefficiencies in the model operation as well. So don't
0: have enough uh, computational power to handle all this in real time is part of the problem, right? make the high resolution models ingest all this data and give you answers quickly.
1: (laughs) I think that's that's where I was going to ask you, is one of the things that we're moving toward you know and we know weather prediction and the efficacy of weather models numerical weather prediction is is strongly a function of computing power and we we've known that for some time Um, but one of the things that's starting to happen in the modeling community yeah we've got the euro model we've got the gfs but we're starting to have these very high resolution models like the hrrr model and these sort of high high very small scale models And there's a lot of data at those scales, because you're talking about, you know, on the order of kilometers or sub-kilometer grid point resolution rather than 10 kilometers or 50 kilometers. Um, But it's not just a modeling satellite problem. What are some other sort of ways, at least your institute? And we're going to talk about that after the first break in more detail, the institute. But just with the recent tornadoes, I think that's on everyone's mind. We're taping this right before Christmas and we've had severe weather uh, how could you envision, or how do your research partners envision AI helping with severe weather prediction?
0: One of the goals we'd really like to do with something like the tornadoes is be able to now cast the tornadoes up to about an hour in advance. And I realized that actually some of those tornadoes were fairly well warned ahead of the the general average warning length is 15 minutes. And I think some of those had about 35, if I remember from the news. But we'd like it to be about somewhere in the hour range and with high trust. And that's something we talked about with the trust, because right now, If you said to somebody that there was going to be a tornado down their street an hour in advance, I think they're fairly likely to say, ha ha, no, I'm not going to. Why would I listen to you? But we would like to be able to do that prediction with enough warning time. People could take more precautions. I mean, we're not going to be able to stop the tornado. But if you had a whole hour warning, you can get away from the places that are unsafe. You could secure your valuables. You can get your family into a better place. And and if you trust that that model is really going to tell you what's really happening, then you could do a better job of protecting yourself.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Amy McGovern from the University of Oklahoma. Uh, and she is really the, uh, you know, the leader, the director of a new institute, the NSF AI Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI, Weather in weather, climate, and coastal oceanography. I had to kind of get that right. It's a mouthful. And that's probably why they have an acronym. So I understand that coming from my NASA days as well. Tell NSF you,
0: gave us that mouthful, by the way. Yeah, they had a shorter oh, name.
1: <laughs> okay, so and, and that's where I, that's what I was going to ask next. I don't think people that perhaps uh, listen to the podcast, and some of them certainly do, but don't know how a center like this or institute stands up. So tell us how the institute came about.
0: Oh, that's a really interesting question. The the way that you get a successful large institute is that you have a large group of people that have been working together for a long time. You can't just throw it together at the last minute. So that is part of my success mix in the story is that we put a lot of these people together have been working together 10 years in some cases, five years, you know, many, many years together. Um, The way that you get the actual institute funded is you spend a tremendous amount of time, basically two Christmases ago, I did nothing but write a proposal for the entire break, writing... um, It ends up being about 350 pages of a proposal that goes to NSF. It gets reviewed by the peer community. um, And then you, in this case, generally at NSF, for the readers who don't necessarily, or the readers, the listeners who don't necessarily know that, generally you get the peer review and then you get decisions. With the very large um, institutes, you actually have to go through a second round of reviews. So we had to do, um, they call them reverse site visits because they don't we would normally go to them, but because it was COVID, we did it all over Zoom. Um, but NSF basically interviewed the finalists and we were one of those finalists. And then, you know, we don't get feedback from that reverse site visit. We just got funded. So I guess we did well at the reverse
1: site visit. You just must have. You must have. Well. Yeah, we're, we're, we're waiting on one of the results from a large ERC proposal right now. So as you're talking through this, I'm I'm living it from the other side as a, as a researcher. <laughs>
0: it takes a while and i know that the stcs the science and technology centers took over 2 years ours was a little bit under a year oh wow so. yeah
1: yeah we we've been waiting and wondering about site visits and so forth so this is really insightful for me i want to sort of circle back to ai now because i know that there are perceptions and misperceptions about ai what would you say are the biggest sort of misperceptions or misconceptions about ai in the public
0: oh I think there's two. One is that people think it can do anything, that it's magic, that you can just give it data and magic will happen and the AI will just do things right. And then the other half is that what it does is objective. That's definitely a misperception because if you give it Bad data, it produces bad results. Um, We just actually put a paper out last week talking about the ethics of AI for weather and climate um, and environmental science in general. And we were trying to point out a lot of ways in which the AI could unintentionally reproduce biases. And I think people tend to think, particularly in the weather community, that weather is objective. And so, therefore, it should just if you give it data from weather, it should just produce objective answers and the AI isn't, even though it's math, it's not objective because it's math optimizing data and the data, if it's biased, can produce biased results.
1: So what 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 were some of those examples now since you you mentioned that, some of the examples where bias could rear its head?
0: Um, there are a lot of examples. Um, I'll give a couple. One is that data is not particularly uniformly sampled across across the globe, but particularly even in the United States, we tend to think we in the United States are very data rich compared to some of the other countries. And we tend to think that, oh, the data is all perfect. It's uh, objective and it's uniformly sampled, but there's a lot of data that's missing. There are places that we call data deserts. Um, And so we might be underserving parts of the population based on where we don't have objective data. So for example, air pollution sensors, it tends to be that there's more air pollution in the inner cities, but they tend not to have the sensors because they're more expensive. And if you're relying on crowdsourced data, then it tends to come from the more um, sub- the suburbs. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Because you're missing the sensing. Um, you might, the radar data has some of those known biases as well. But then there's also data that's just collected by people. So um, tornado reports and hail reports as an example, since we were talking about them, people have to report them. <laughs> which means that there has to be where people are. So if it tornadoes or hails in the middle of a field, maybe it doesn't matter, but it matters to the AI model because now the AI model might have learned that it only tornadoes and hails in cities or along roads. And and you know along a similar lines, if you're looking at predicting strength of the tornado, if the tornado was, an, was essentially an EF5 in wind strength, but it went through an open field, you might not get it rated as an EF-5 because it didn't knock anything down. And so now, again, you might be biasing your your model because your model might now be about to predict a tornado that's going to go through a giant town, but it doesn't have the right data. Right. So it might be the wrong answers.
1: And speaking of the answer to Dr. McGovern, we're talking with Dr. Amy McGovern from University of Oklahoma. And speaking of the uh, reporting of hail and things like that, uh, if you don't have the MPing app uh Go out and get that. Download that to your phone. It's a really neat crowdsourcing app that helps our federal weather enterprise know when it's raining or snowing or, or sleeting or, or hailing where you are. So you can contribute mm-hmm. to some of this data collection if you just download the MPing app. Uh, and help. And it gives you phone.
0: a great difference. It, it, I would highly recommend MPing for another application we haven't talked about. He's been talking about tornadoes, but um, freezing rain to rain. If you MPing that on the radar, it looks almost identical and it's a really hard transition. So go get your MPing app and MPing that. Because yeah, absolutely.
1: It, it, it's not just something it's, it's neat for you as just a weather geek uh, or a weather geeks listener or even for your kids, but it really is helping. It's actually the that data is helping uh, meteorologists and so forth and researchers. So just wanted to take that aside. Now, this, you're not just focused on weather, uh, as I know, you're also focused on the oceans. Tell us a little bit about ocean applications and AI.
0: Yes, and not just by the way on the weather side, not just on severe weather. We we are also talking about winter weather and other things like that. Um, Inside oceans, we have two. So we have seven academic institutions involved in this, and two of them are on the coast and two different spots on the coast. Um, So they have different oceanography applications. One of them, Texas A and M Corpus Christi, they're working on predicting fog. Um, The Bay of Corpus Christi is one of the largest, most trafficked um, bays for shipping in the United States, and they get a lot of fog. And so they're working on predicting the fog there, and then they'll extend that model out to the rest of the world. And one of the other applications i'd love to talk about is um the turtles the turtles down there get cold stunned if it gets cold it doesn't get cold in south texas very often but when it does the turtles get cold stunned they rise up to the surface and they're like in this weird state where they don't they're they're stunned and the ships can run over them they get beached and they die because they're Either they got run over or because their body just can't stand the cold temperatures. And we have a prediction system that's working on predicting these cold stunning events so they can stop the traffic in the, in the Bay of Corpus Christi and then rescue the turtles. Um, the other one is North Carolina State University, and they're working on two different applications. They're looking at harmful algal blooms, which are something that I think the public probably hears a lot about and how bad they are. So we want to improve the prediction of them. And the other one is something I learned about with the creation of the Institute, is uh, these large-scale ocean eddies that happen. They are very large-scale circulations. They affect the traffic in the ocean and in the, in the bay, um, in the Gulf particularly, um, and they last for many months. And so we want to improve the understanding of the creation of those and then the dissipation of them.
1: So as I'm sort of listening to you, you have these partner institutions. You just mentioned Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, and NC State, and each of them have various projects that it sounds like they're working on in the AI Weather, climate, ocean sector. So, what are some of your other partners and other cool projects they're working on? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm significantly. I mean, I I know them because I've been in some of your meetings. But for your listeners.
0: Right. And I realized that I didn't say one of the applications in ocean also. So I'll go to the next partner. Colorado State is working on a uh, tropical cyclones. So that's another ocean application. They're also working on subseasonal to seasonal prediction. Um, University at Albany is primarily working on winter weather. So we're trying to improve the prediction of like the rain, freezing rain events that we were talking about, visibility um, and uh, major snowfall events. Um, Okay, made me do this all on the spot. Delmar oh. College is uh, is doing the, uh, the they're they're a community college and they're doing a significant outreach project for us. They just started um, creating one of the first community college AI certificates, and it just started this fall. Um, we premiered that, um, and then we uh, just so we have OU that's leading the the convective weather. We already talked about that. Um, University of Washington is helping us with um, risk communication. Um, Ncar is also helping with the convective weather and the risk communication, and then we just added a partner at the academic institution. We've been adding private industry partners as well, and I'd be glad to talk about that too. But um, we added a um, Central Michigan University, who's helping us with some of the um, the severe, the hail, and the tornadoes.
1: Yeah, and let's 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 talk about that because how are private uh, entities and companies uh, playing into the institute?
0: It's a really interesting question. Um, we have a we made an agreement with everybody up front that we were going to do everything open source because some of our private industry partners are competitors with each other. Um, and so they work together with us. Many of them are working directly with the students and helping to co-supervise projects. And then everything we produce is open source. So if IBM, who I know owns the Weather Channel, um, wants to get a product. Well,
1: they, they, don't, they don't anymore, actually.
0: <laughs> um, OK, OK. They don't own this, is what you're saying. <laughs>
1: they don't own the Weather Channel and the web Pod. They they they're part of the Weather Company, which did split apart. <laughs> just, okay. just make sure everyone understands that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, IBM's one of our partners, and you know, Google's a partner, and uh, you know, ViSala is a partner, and some of them have agreements with each other, right? But if everything we're doing is open source, then they can all benefit from our research without having to just be benefiting one of them. And it's working out really well. We have access to very interesting data and uh, good computational resources and good understanding of what really needs to be done in industry. And then we can help. The goal is that we can help really accelerate that transition from the from the research world to the industry world, because there's really a big gulf between what goes on in research and what comes on in, in actual commercialization. We're also working with NOAA with the same goals. You know, we want to take this research. We really want to make it operational. It's a big gulf to jump.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Amy McGovern, about AI and all things AI as it relates to weather and climate. And by the way, she, she mentioned ownership. Shout out to Byron Allen, who is the owner of the Weather Channel. And uh, I, uh, I know he's been doing some big things and I'm hoping to have him on, on the podcast uh, one day. Is, I, know we, I know we're working on it, but he's he's been moving the needle quite a bit at the Weather Channel. So I want to give him a shout out. Um, now, how, you know, this is an emerging air area, AI and weather and climate. I'm the director of a major atmospheric sciences program at a university. So if someone wants to get into this sort of intersection of AI, machine learning and weather and climate as a student or even as a professional looking to change careers, what's your advice? What, what should they be studying? What should they know?
0: That's an excellent question. I actually, for the student end, just put an uh, EOS, AGU EOS article out. Um, John Allen and I co-wrote it. Um, and we were talking about the new curriculums that really need to be developed at the universities that really give you a good foundational understanding of AI and programming. So the computer science end, and the high performance computing, as well as the, the the domain knowledge that you need for the domain science. We made it general. It wasn't specific to meteorology, but more of the physical sciences in general. Um, at the more career level, the adult retraining level, I would say there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to learn a lot about this from online resources. So we've been running a summer school for two summers now and we're about, we've are about we got our third one scheduled. Um, there are a bunch of other people out there that are getting ready to do summer schools. Climate change and AI is doing one. Uh, the NOAA Center for AI, we're working together with them. There are a lot of online resources out there that you can take these courses. Their materials are available as YouTube videos and then as notebooks that you can download code and try the code out yourself on your data. And I think that you could get a really good start there if you're an adult who's trying to go back and retrain.
1: That's really that's useful information because I these are real, you know, challenges that that we face. You know this at universities. I mean, we you know. How, you know, we see where things are headed with AI and data analytics and big data and so forth. And, you know, our our programs, including my own, have to be malleable and adjustable to these changes. And so I am going to Google that article uh, that you just mentioned uh, and pass that along because we are actually h- hiring a, a faculty member in our program right now. Not, not in atmospheric sciences, but it's a cluster hire across several departments at the University of Georgia. And I think we need to understand some of those issues. What are you, Amy? I I consider you, and look, you're on some of the highest level boards and committees in this country. I think we share a term on the Board of Atmospheric Sciences and Climate for the National Academies and you're you're sought out and you're called upon as an expert in this area. What are you most excited about, about the future of AI? And what are you most concerned about?
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm most excited that we're going to be able to really transform a lot of the really hard problems. Um, Weather, of course, excites me, but actually I think the applications to medicine really excite me as well, that we could use AI to considerably improve vaccines, our prediction of cancer. I just read an article yesterday from somebody who's saying that they think they can predict breast cancer five years before anybody else can do it. I mean, imagine the applications for AI for healthcare. That's, I think, really, really exciting. Also, self-driving cars. I know I should be excited for the weather, and I am, but I think a lot of these other applications also have the ability to save lives. Um, as well as weather. Well, speaking
1: Um, of the self-driving cars, I should mention, because we've had a couple of guests on the podcast that have talked about sort of uh, uh, self-driving automated cars but how they really depend on weather, <laughs>
0: oh yes cars I, I didn't are mention that. At the
1: sides of the roads and they, they need to see the white lines and these sort of other things that they utilize that depend on the weather and so forth. So I found that interesting. I just want to inject that as an aside.
0: yeah, actually, we're trying to form a partnership. Um we have a partnership with Google Research, and we're working to form a partnership with Waymo right now um because they are very interested in what we're doing. and Waymo, is doing self-driving cars. And yes, they very much care about what the weather looks like. One of the other things they care about is the visibility prediction that we've been talking about. Even though we're talking about it on the New York state highway cameras, you could do it live on the car. And if you could have the visibility under, and it also if you could tie that all together and know that you're coming into an area that's, you know, particularly poor visibility, maybe you need to adjust your driving on your self-driving car. I think it's a great idea. Um, You asked the other half of the question, what am I most concerned about? I'm concerned that if we don't do it carefully and ethically and responsibly, that AI is going to be used to perpetuate biases that already exist in the system. Um, It's already been doing that for credit reports, for uh, um, health insurance, for, you know, there there's so many ways in which people thought AI was unbiased that it's not, that they didn't Understand the implications. This has been written about in a lot of books. Um, You know, it's used to do your automated evaluation, and then it might um, you might get fired from your job. It's used to recommend your judicial sentencing if you went to you committed a crime, and it is more likely to say that. Black people are more likely to recommit their crime, and that's wrong. We shouldn't have an AI model that is biased, that's affecting the rest of somebody's lives. And that's my biggest concern, is that we need to find a way to do it ethically and responsibly so that we are not perpetuating the biases that exist in the system already.
1: Yes. Yeah. It makes me think about, you know, we're doing some work right now on urban heat and how historical redlining practices from decades ago may have created sort of these places where people in cities are disproportionately exposed to heat. So when you said that, it made me think about sort of AI redlining in a sense uh, that's going on because you're sort of automatically and objectively, quote unquote, based on the, I guess, the rules of engagement used in the AI algorithms you're creating these biases. On the other hand, though, there are opportunities for youth and kids and so forth. And you, you alluded to this in an answer earlier, but uh, you've developed K through 12 outreach programs or projects to excite kids in STEM. Tell us a little bit more about those.
0: Um, those are, so those are pretty much just beginning because of COVID because we are a lot in the schools for the first year. The original plan was to be there in the first year, but we're working on developing a variety of projects to get the kids excited about using AI for environmental science applications. So it's not just going to be weather, but there will be a lot of different environmental science applications. Um, this is largely being led by Colorado state, although we were doing some of it at OU. primarily at OU, we're doing primarily high school students. I think at Colorado State, they're going down into the middle school as well. So trying to show them ways that you can develop a really simple AI algorithm and use it to change the world, get them excited about it. I want them to see that they could become somebody who could change the world. They could become a developer of this and they could really make a positive impact. That's another thing to tie us back into the biases. The more you show the middle schoolers that This is something that environmental science and computer science is something they can use to make a positive impact in the world, the more likely they are to be interested in it. That's about when they're starting to lose their interests. And we typically lose more of the underrepresented groups at that age because they think, well, I want to go make a positive change to the world. There's plenty of books to show this. And then they can't. And they think they can't. They get stuck into studying the math and the theory, and they don't understand the applications. So we're trying to develop something that can hopefully spark that interest and keep that interest so they can see I could use this, I could go improve this thing that my community really needs. One
1: last sort of science-y type question is something I didn't ask earlier because we were focused more on weather, severe weather, oceans, but we're living climate change. We're in the midst of it. Yes. Uh, It is here. It's not about 2080. It's right now. How do you envision AI, machine learning uh, being applied to the climate change challenge?
0: I think it's really the key to helping us be more resilient to the climate change. There, I guess there are two halves of that. The the other half is that. that so let me, let me go with the resiliency. If we can improve our, I hope you can't hear the dogs. I'm oh, sorry. He,
1: I hear him. Hello dog. But uh, he's a weather <laughs> geek too. We happen to have him listen. <laughs> Keep going.
0: Okay. (laughs) They're all barking. (laughs) Um, um, if, If we can use AI to, so as the climate is changing, our severe weather is changing, which is what we've been seeing a lot. You know, we've been having more heat waves and more intense tornadoes and tornado outbreaks in December. If we can use the AI to improve our prediction of those events, we can help with the resiliency. The other parts of it could be that we could use AI to improve our prediction in general of how the climate is going to change. So we didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the applications of AI is to improve the numerical weather prediction models to actually get in there and use AI to replace pieces of the models that, that can run more accurately and much faster and with less computational resources. And so, therefore, we could improve our prediction of the of the climate going forward. And that will also help with our resiliency.
1: Yeah, that, that's really, really exciting applications. Uh, Amy, where can people learn more about the Institute or for perhaps follow you on social media or the Institute? Give us all of your coordinates, if you remember them. <laughs> I remember them. Okay. So give it, give us all of that information so our listeners, if they want to follow you or find out more.
0: So the, we have a website for the Institute. It's AI2, the number two, es.org. Um, and we have lots of information on there. And I know that, that um, Dr. Shepard was there because uh, he was reading pieces of it earlier from reading about the Institute. And we have a, um, I have a Twitter handle. It's at Prof Amy McGovern. Um, And the Institute has a Twitter handle as well. Although I admit that it's because I mostly do the tweets. I don't tweet as much as I should, but I try. Um, But it is at AI2Enviro because AI2ES was taken.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. So that someone got to that first. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would encourage you all to take a look at some of those uh sites and, and social media handles, some really interesting stuff. We've got to almost get out of here, but before we do, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is David Hondula. David is the director of heat response and mitigation for the city of Phoenix. Now, this is a new position, and I know David. So congratulations on this really groundbreaking position. In fact, he was the first publicly funded municipal heat officer in the US and got to have him on the show too. So to our Weather Geeks producers, let's get David Hondul on there. Uh, While sunny skies are his favorite type of weather, he's no stranger to storms growing up in New Jersey where he lived when Hurricane Floyd moved through. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Dr. McGovern, Amy to me because we know each other's colleagues uh, thank you so much for joining us on the weather geeks podcast thank you it's been really great and for all of you that listen continue to listen in 2022 we have some amazing guests coming forth and thank you so much for staying with us all of this time and we'll see you next time on weather geeks
2: investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at That's corient.com. That's corien tcom com.